2022. After a year like 2021, what in the world should we expect? Well, the RLS boys dust off the old crystal ball and discuss projected economic growth, inflation, interest rate hikes, supply chain pressures, labor constraints, and the possible continued impacts of COVID-19. We then ask how the high unfavorability ratings of both the White House and the Congress, coupled with the prospect of a drubbing in this year's midterm elections, might stymie or, for that matter, accelerate Democrats' policy goals for new taxes and massive new entitlement programs. Finally, in light of all this, we consider what all this might mean for the stock, bond, and commodities markets, along with possible ways you could position your portfolio accordingly. Stay tuned as we discuss all this and more right now on the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Welcome. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lungani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work toward your ideal retirement. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams. Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. I'm your co-host, Roshan Lungani, here with Eric Olson. Adrian is not with us today as well. He is uh, traveling a day early to avoid getting stuck in Maine. So uh, he's on the road somewhere right now. Adrian, I hope you're driving safe. Yeah. I wonder, do you kind of wonder if this is just a ruse and just Adrian is just trying to see if we can survive a podcast a couple of times in a row without his, his assistance? (laughs) He's, he's, is this a holdout on his contract? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I actually think he'd rather be recording than driving. Uh, I think it's like a 14-hour drive, some, something very long for him mm. as far as the drive goes. Well, this is, the, but nonetheless here, look, once again, Roshan, second time in two some years that you and I are trying to carry this on our own. So let's, let's see how this goes. Yeah, and you know what? Maybe he just wanted to not be a part of your uh, series concept that you've been pushing for for years. So <laughs> yes, uh, last true. week we did the uh, uh, year in review. Now we'll talk about the preview for 2022, and uh, we'll go over different areas and then what you as an investor can, can look at and what you can do about it. So uh, mm-hmm. Eric, let's start us off. You had a great framework. Well, so yeah, today I thought, folks, we would talk about both economy and markets and then some of the implications of what we're going to say in in observations about the markets. Um, Then what sorts of action steps might that imply and adjustments in your either your your approach or the composition of your portfolio? I do want to say, though, that forecasting or making giving a projection like this giving out an outlook is a very messy business it's one thing to say hey here's what actually happened it's a completely different thing to say what might happen in fact i went to uh there's a group called focus economics that has a list every year where they rank the accuracy in the prior year of various private sector forecasting groups on a variety of measures. Those would be, you know, inflation, GDP growth, interest rates, and so forth. And they do that for pretty much every active, um, measurable economy on the planet. Um, But here in the United States, I went back and I looked all the way back for the top three forecasters for 2020, all the way back to 2015. And what I found was, that there was in the top three forecasters, there was only one company that showed up even twice in the top three. In other words, there's not a lot of consistency. It seems to a large extent, it's just kind of luck of the draw if you wound up having the most accurate projection. And so on that basis, there are a number of (laughs) forecasting groups that said, hey, rather than try and nail it, let's just use a consensus forecast. So there's the consensus forecast uh, on a subscription basis from Focus Economics and and uh, f- from the Blue Chip Indicator Group and so forth. And so we're just going to talk about, you know, in general terms, what sort of 
broad projections are about some of these numbers. And, you know, we'll see a year from now if we were roughly correct. How about you, Rosen? Yeah, you know, so first, um, a great way to start it off, I would say for myself, the way I look at this and for everyone listening, one is the forecasters aren't going to get it all right. Where mm -hmm. I find it useful is general direction as opposed to accuracy of their information down to you know, the, the second decimal point or anything, anything like mm -hmm. that. So that's where I mm -hmm. think we can look at general themes, but I would bet that all the sources we're going to cite and review will be wrong on something uh, <laughs> to a certain degree. But I think mm -hmm. the general theme of what's going on with the markets, we can use that to, to help us uh, get some direction and to help us look at ways to uh, invest. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So let's just start by talking about projections about the economy. What are you, Roshan, what were some of the things that you, you observed in terms of the, your review of the projections out there about what to expect on the economy side first, and then we can come to the markets? Uh, that, uh, a return to more normal growth rates. You know, this year looks like we're going to close, and by growth rates, I'm sorry, I'm referring to GDP growth. Mm -hmm. This year, we're looking at it hitting uh, around 5% is what we should close the year at. Uh, and they're saying we'll get back to the expectations to get back to normal levels of 3.3%. Going back to what I said about general direction and a guide, to me that makes sense. There was pent-up mm -hmm. spending out there. Also, uh, supply chain issues, which are, are causing people to bid up some products price-wise. Mm -hmm. So you've got a few things that are causing the number to go up that I think will normalize. So mm -hmm. I think getting back to a normal GDP makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. What are your mm -hmm. thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I agree with that number. I just I, most of the forecasts I saw were sort of projecting high twos to to high twos to mid threes, sort of settling in there in the low threes, like you said, three point three. That sounds about right. So yeah, so that that was one. And then in terms of inflation, what what are you seeing about inflation? Obviously, we were ending here. I think the fourth quarter, or at least no, the November number. I don't know that we have the December number. I think the year-on-year -year, um, CPI growth from November of last year to November of this was 6.8%. And that, remember, that's blending some of the highs and some of the lows. So, you know, food inflation and other things like that, uh, and energy inflation even more so. So uh, but what, were your, what were you seeing about forecasts for inflation? Yeah, so I, I'm seeing also getting back to normal for inflation. Interesting. Uh, notes, I just like picking out these uh, dates sometimes, but highest inflation rate since 82 mm -hmm. um, is what, uh, what we've got. What will be interesting to me on this is um, the argument that's been happening since uh, inflation has been a major topic, which to me was probably quarter, late quarter one, quarter two of uh, 2020, uh, is, is it temporary or is it, is it you know, supply chain driven or is it more permanent inflation? And mm -hmm. we should have answers to that soon. The, the one thing I believe you have on your list as an overall category that I'm sort of getting us over to right now as well is just COVID. But you know, that's going to be a driver, right? Mm -hmm. If you've got supply chain issues because there aren't enough people to work, like we saw that with uh, lumber earlier this year, there weren't enough people to work the mills. Um, uh, you know, semiconductors we've talked about at length. So you you. I'm hoping we get some clarity on inflation versus supply chain, uh, and uh, COVID will be part of the answer there. If we're if mm -hmm. we're able to continue working normally uh, with any new variants, things like that, uh, I think we'll be fine. Although, mm -hmm. interestingly, I I wish I could remember where uh, I have to look this up, but I had heard that some schools locally are going to go back to virtual. But mm -hmm. I heard that from my nephew and sometimes his information is not accurate so mm -hmm. I, i'm okay. quoting my source and he doesn't listen so if he does i did say <laughs> your information is not always accurate <laughs> but so that, that's my nephew sage told me that but i need to look that up uh i'm hoping that's not the case just because uh -huh. um uh not even from a major like economic or outlook forecast one i'd be pretty surprised because everything i'm hearing about uh about uh the variant, the new, the Omicron variant is that, um, uh, is that, um, it's not as severe, uh, it doesn't last as long, uh, although it is more contagious. So I was, I've been 
And I've also seen a few things that said this may be signaling more towards this may be an early sign that we're getting towards the end of it because it's it's more mild. Uh, so mm -hmm. I'm hoping all that's true. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, but if Maryland schools are closing, I'm just hoping that's not uh, a trend. I'm mm -hmm. going to look that up. Well, so you tied a few things together there. So let me just go back to the beginning of that sequence of ideas and just talk in terms of wrapping up the inflation. And I do want to talk with you about yeah. the impact on on uh, supply chain and uh, and labor. Uh, but on the inflation side, we had done an inflation episode much earlier in 2021. And, and in that, I know we weren't all in complete uniform uh, agreement about everything, but I, I was saying that I believed that this was indeed not a permanent um, elevated inflation, that we would, over the coming five years, probably be higher than the, the low twos or high ones that we'd been enjoying for a while. I thought we'd settle in maybe in the high twos or in the low threes, somewhere in there. And I still believe that's correct, but I also think it's, it's going to take a while until we resolve all of that. So first half of 2022, I'm expecting still elevated inflation, maybe in the, you know, five, six area, four, five, six area, somewhere in there. And then only then, if, as you pointed out, we can get past some of the supply chain constraints and labor shortages, do we then reach a point where we settle in? So, uh, so I want to come back to those two topics, but let's do talk about COVID. Since well, hold you, on, hold yeah. on. Mm -hmm. well, just add on the inflation, unless you've got, got more on there. There's one other point. One, I believe mm -hmm. you mentioned this, but we are, um, as of November, we're almost at 7%, and the Fed mm -hmm. mandate is to try to keep us around 2 Mm -hmm. So if you uh, to me, if you look at those two numbers, that's three and a half times an annual number, right? So not mm -hmm. arguing if it's temporary or permanent right now, just the 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 numbers mm -hmm. themselves. To appreciate uh, going, how elevated, mm -hmm. yes, yeah, absolutely. exactly. You got you've got it, you've got it. You know, three and a half times higher almost. And then going a little bit further, I'm seeing similar things to what you are in my in my research that it looks like it'll be higher in the first half. And then settle down to around three, but mm -hmm. even three is you know one and a half times that that Fed target. Now mm -hmm. inflation is better than deflation, as uh, it, I've mentioned. Helicopter Ben that nickname on multiple episodes in the past, uh, mm -hmm. but still you know, three doesn't sound that high because you know it'll be lower than than almost seven. But at the same time, it's still um, you know one and a half times what we what we're actually looking for, at least what the Fed's actually looking for. Okay, so I'm glad you brought us back to this because I think maybe it's also useful to say so, but what could change our forecasts or what would, what would cause us to see something other than our, what would, what would lead us to believe that our original forecast or our core forecast are likely to be modified? I, I would say you, you pointed out one thing is, the co is COVID, and I'm going to come back to that. Another thing I would say is if we have a, two things actually one if it settles into people's mindset that there is now elevated inflation it has a sort of self-reinforcing quality to it in that yeah. employers start giving cost of living adjustment raises not just performance raises or you know that, that sort of thing and once that starts to take hold and then workers expect that now you have everybody sort of um, playing, to, so it becomes to a certain extent a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's number one. Your thoughts about that? I can I can see that uh, as well to a certain degree. I just mm -hmm. feel like at some point, um, m maybe that could take us from two to three. I don't see that taking us from two to seven though, right? No, the not seven. Prophecy. Yeah, but four, five. Uh, maybe, maybe. Mm. I, I would I, I would not like that because I, I'm thinking of it going back. We're going across our different topics right now, but I'm thinking about from a market perspective, and that would not. I'm then seeing Fed raising rates, uh, you know, even even faster than they planned. So I'm hoping that that's not the case. That that it's it's creating a self fulfilling prophecy. I, I have to look up the numbers on on the wage gap, but just going back, the long term data on that says that wages have not been ri rising. Um, as they should to stay in line with inflation over the last, what, 20, 30 years? 
Uh, th that's the argument that corporations are keeping the profits for themselves and not passing it on to employees. And we've seen data behind that. So even if that self-fulfilling prophecy holds true, I don't see that turning a long-term trend in just a couple years. I hope you're right. Um, I just think back to the 70s, and once the inflation mindset started to to take hold, it started manifesting itself in negotiations of all kinds around uh, pricing and so forth. So, I, but I certainly hope you're right. Here's the other thing that I think could affect this. And um, you, you, you can pick whose story you think you find most plausible, but um, even someone who hardly can be, con uh, no, hardly could be uh, characterized as a, as a right winger, <laughs> Larry Summers has said mm -hmm. that the extent of federal spending, as well mm -hmm. as Federal Reserve um, bond purchasing, but or asset purchasing, but especially federal spending, has been overdone, and as a result, that has added fuel to the fire and driven prices higher. So, in his caution, he's cautioned policymakers about going further with that as would have happened for example with build back better had that gargantuan proposal been passed i mean we, we again just to recap something we've said before it was pitched as you know 1.9 trillion or 1.75 trillion or in its slimmed down version 1.5 but that was many programs in there were then officially scheduled to end after one year. Is that going to happen? No, that is not going to happen. So when the Congressional Budget Office scored it and looked at it with the assumption that those programs continue to be funded, they're saying it's a $5 trillion spend over the coming decades. So with that, it, you, know, you start to say, okay, how do we, um, how do we prevent th these things kicking in and further reinforcing this inflation? Well, and you know, you talk about that, and we're not. Uh, that's still not done, right? Like, there's still mm -hmm. the talk about um, increased taxes uh, targeting the wealthy and corporations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, if you change corporate taxes, you increase corporate taxes, you're lowering earnings, which is another downward pressure on the markets, and mm -hmm. uh, arguably less money available then to pass on to employees, uh, which would then lead to um, uh, inflate, uh, pressure pushing inflation down. Mm -hmm. That's so possible. It, it, I mean, it's, it's, I'm not pro-corporate um, tax. I'm looking at this for how can uh, my clients grow their wealth and you know, mm -hmm. higher taxes don't help them do that. Um, we're just not out of, out of the woods with all this spending. It's still... When we were talking about things that could change what's uh, what's expected, there's another. In addition to we mentioned COVID, another thing is uh, just build back better. That how that continues to be negotiated and what's gonna what's what's next. Well, you've made a good distinction there. So it's on the one hand, there's the spending side, yes. which would fuel it. There's the tax policy side that could could tamp it down. So uh, I, I I fully agree with that. And, and actually, that really just leads us into not only policy, but politics, I think. And yeah. so if you look at, if right now the, um, the favorability ratings for, for the White House, both the president and the vice president, as well as uh, Democrats in Congress were just running really, really strong, I think you'd see a higher likelihood of some of these measures being passed. Right now, that's not the case. And that, I'm not saying it can't change. And in fact, it has changed since November. Uh, the, there's been, I, there's been a rebound, not a big one, but at least the signs of a rebound in approvable ratings or job favor, favorability ratings toward, uh, the president and vice president, as well as the, the Democrats in Congress. But that, who knows where that's going? And if, as you come into the midterms, you find generally speaking that policymakers get more and more cautious because they don't want voters who have un admittedly short memories, they don't want them at the ballot box sort of taking it out on <laughs> those politicians. So yeah. I, I think it's going to be even harder in 2022 than it was in 2021 to get some of these measures passed. You, you, would you agree with that? It makes, makes sense at the very least for the first, what, three quarter, 11 months of the year, right? Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. yeah, until until we get through those elections. But yeah, I, I, mm-hmm. I, that makes a lot of sense. It will be harder to get something like that through. Does that does that then uh, going back to how we went down this path, which was uh, government spending and inflation? Would you then, in your mind, think that's a less of a risk because the likelihood of something passing um, it seems lower? Possibly. So the offsetting, possibly. But the offsetting component of this, which I haven't really said, is, is that despite the understandable fear, particularly of, of moderates in sort of purple districts, to be cautious about what they get their name tied to, there are actually some people who are comfortably situated in either full red or full blue districts who don't have to really adhere to or heed those kinds of, um, don't have to be quite as cautious. And it is interesting that Nancy Pelosi in particular, as the Speaker of the House, drove moderates into a very difficult position by pushing and pushing on some of these uh, some of these bills, and if she does the same thing in 2022 and says, "Look, we may have some losses, but this is our one best last chance before potentially uh, control of the House and possibly the Senate shifts following the 2022 elections," we have got to do it done. We've got to get it done now, or it's not going to happen. And so it might be that my my essential expectation of a reduced chance might be sort of countered with a furious push to get some of these things through. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. You know what I wonder about, um, what you just indicated is just the fact that the way, um, the split currently is Mm -hmm. you only need one person worried about their job to not vote in the direction. With well, you, in right? the Senate, for sure, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> where it's fifty-fifty, yeah, absolutely. So I think the uh, I, I don't, yeah that that counters um, uh, that that argument to me. The fact that you only need one person thinking, "Hey, I can't vote for this because I have career risk. If I do, <laughs> I won't get reelected." Uh, whereas you, versus needing everyone to feel comfortable putting that vote in, but mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. you. Uh, uh, I I don't know. Once again, I, I'm hopeful that. Um, that they're not able to increase increase taxes. So I like your first theory better than your second. <laughs> All right. So back to then the supply chain uh, question and and COVID and labor shortages and so forth. So you you talked about COVID. I was we've been hearing until yesterday, I believe it was that wow, overwhelmingly the number of cases that are uh, of COVID nineteen that are now being. Um, uh, new cases are are identified with Omicron as yeah. opposed to Delta. And just for, as a recap, I think most of our listeners are pretty attentive to these sorts of things. But Delta was somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 times more transmissible than the original uh, Alpha, I guess it was the Alpha uh, variant. And Omicron is, I believe, I've heard 70 times more transmissible than Delta. So if you put those two, you do the math on those two things, if those numbers are correct, then Omicron is 2,800 times more transmissible than Alpha was. So, but yesterday it came out, and folks, we're recording this on uh, December 29th. So yesterday it came out that that was a a mistake. And instead of it being a majority of cases that are surfacing, at least in the hospitals right now, it seems like it's only around a quarter of the cases so far, at least, that are Omicron related. So it, it could be that it could be that it, it, Omicron isn't quite as transmissible, or it's not, it hasn't spread quite as widely yet. But if your thesis is correct, that the severity of Omicron is much lower, then absolutely, it, I, I mean, I'm not saying I'm eager for anyone to have. COVID-19, but thinking of it at a global population level, if everyone could get the sniffles and then we could all get this behind us, you know, being, of course, I'm extreme, extreme yeah. folks, I'm explaining that in the most, you know, sort of casual way. I don't, there will be some people whose lives will be ended by this. I understand that. But my point is, is that if we can, if we can reach that stage, what a, what a breakthrough that would be, you know, to the positive side of finally, finally creating an immunity level in people that, puts this to rest for now. 
Yeah, and you know, when you talk about the percentages, I just Googled it just because I, I'd heard different numbers. Mm-hmm. And literally, the first one, every article I see has a different number all within oh. a few days' date. So that uh. just makes me wonder where they're getting their data from. So NBC News on December 20th says 70%, 73% of new cases right. are, uh-huh. are Omicron. Uh, then you've got um, New York Times eight hours ago says 59%. Um, Washington Post, 18 hours ago, 58.6, so that's about the same. Four hours ago, ABC News um, uh, has, oh, that's not this one. December 20th, another one says 73, 73%. Now, we're a week later, but uh-huh. it's just, it's just where, they're, where are the numbers coming I from? I thought it just was CDC so yesterday said 23%. On, but CDC growing, said 23? I thought so. I thought so. I could be wrong. I'll, I'll just, you know. Put an asterisk on that, listeners. But yeah, and um, of course, by the time our listeners hear this, it's going to be early January, and as a result, you know the numbers could the be numbers very, could be very different. different. Again. But the yeah. principle of hoping for some dramatically, you know, it, it would be a it would be just such a blessing to have a sub- substantially reduced severity in a variant come through and essentially provide people with immunity that doesn't, you know, throw them into the hospital or on a ventilator or, or you know, but kill kill them. Yeah, Eric, I wasn't questioning your source. I was just questioning where mm-hmm. everyone's getting it from because uh, right. they're just the, n- yeah. the numbers are just so different. Uh-huh. I found one that has some clarity, which is they're using not just U.S. statistics. That's where you're getting, uh, you know, oh, NBC yeah, News right. 14 minutes ago, 61.5%, whereas mm. New York Times eight hours ago, 59%. Either way, mm. I'm just throwing all these numbers out there. Just mm-hmm. saying, now I'm just questioning where, where the data's coming from. Where's I can tell you something. From? Sure. Yeah, anecdotally, um, I had mentioned that I was in um, uh, for a family member in the ER. I mentioned this to Eric before we started recording on um, uh, Monday. And it was, they had a line out the door. They had all the rooms filled and along all the hallways, they had patients. Mm. Mm. And there were people there saying, you know, I've worked here for 20 years and I've never seen it this busy. I did mm-hmm. ask them if it had to do with, the, with, the, uh, with COVID. And mm-hmm. there was someone that I, they were just, guessing you know, that had been working their full shift that it said about 25 percent of it they were that was covid related mm. Mm. so mm. i just um either i went on the worst day in all this time frame but you know you take that 21 percent out and then maybe you don't have all the hallways lined with beds sure and so it's just uh really really busy right now out there i'm not i'm not sure what what it is but um this actually all of our discussion on COVID, the data, what what I've seen anecdotally, what what we've what we've all read, sort of underscores the potential impact of this. It's just that, just like when it started, nobody knows, but that could throw a wrench into all these forecasts. Yes, that's true. So let's let's come back to the economic uh, consequences of this because it, depending on the direction, we were talking about the supply chain shortage, and and that's certainly one. I, I've I believe, you know, I think pe- most people have carried the assumption that, well, okay, if people then don't have quite the same level of concern uh, about uh, c- contracting COVID-19, that they'll return to work and things will stabilize and this will ease, uh, this will ease supply chain and logistics. Well, I've heard, I would say there's two possible counter arguments to that thesis and they connect to the labor supply question. So some of my clients are in logistics and at a you know, fairly senior level and in, in human resources at a fairly senior level. They're not, they're not projecting that what we're facing right now is going to be resolved by, the, by this, uh, essentially the ebbing away of the COVID concern. I think what they're saying is, is that this pandemic now becoming something I guess we'll say is endemic, has shifted, you know, coupled with this incredible growth in many people's personal balance sheets, has led a lot of older workers to say, you know what, I don't need this anymore. And they've stepped out of the workforce and are not coming back. And as a result, until there are skillful people to replace them, skillful people, not just people, but skillful people to replace them, then these companies, in order to function, are going to have to work with the new normal of extremely constrained labor. And as a result, are going to be looking for other ways of getting business done that, don't, that are not so labor-intensive. So the, 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 I think that's 
That's pretty interesting, <laughs> it seems to me. Your thoughts about that? Well, I mean, to me, that's a long-term trend of, of mm -hmm. uh, lower or, or less jobs. We, about a year ago, had a conversation about, um, about some of this, and we, I think we talked about how um, some restaurants now, you can order from your table, right? You scan, you do the QR code, mm -hmm. the menu comes up via the QR code, you can also order. Uh, which leads to less staff. And then we also discussed how, um, like at McDonald's, they have these huge touchscreens now where you click through to order, order what you want, once again, leading to less staff. And the argument mm -hmm. is, well, then do you, you, you are creating jobs because you need people to repair and maintain and manage these things, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you're also losing, losing a certain amount of jobs. So that, then that would be a, uh, a pressure on... Um, employees to either get more skilled or be out of a job, mm -hmm. which then on a greater level, you're thinking about the, the long-term economic uh, impacts of it, which would be employment, although employment numbers are looking pretty good right now. So we're probably talking years down the road having an impact versus next year. Yeah. Employment numbers by that, you mean the, the relatively low unemployment. And, Correct. Uh, yeah. So it's, so it's a little bit contradictory. So uh, the unemployment rate is pretty low. The labor participation rate, though, is not as high as it was. It used to be. So yeah. you have a working age adults who have decided for whatever reasons that they're not going to be part of it any longer. And, and as a result, when, that, when the available labor pool is measured, then it produces those relatively lower unemployment rates. Here's another consideration on the supply chain um, forecast. And that is, irrespective of the labor question, some of the companies that have been just trying to kind of eke, you know, make their way through this and sort of struggling and struggling and struggling have in some cases taken on debt to try to keep the doors open. And the question is, is will they, particularly if the Fed starts to raise interest rates and their, and their borrowing has any sort of floating interest rate quality to it, Will they then find themselves under such pressure from the debt load before the revenues start to flow again that they simply can't continue? Yeah, yeah and, and I, I don't know that this was debt-related at all but, uh, or, or pure pandemic, but there are multiple local businesses I've seen that aren't open anymore right mm -hmm. through, the, through the pandemic, uh, which like one of our favorite places to order pizza from is, is it doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you do have that, uh, closing of, mm -hmm. um, of businesses. Although I wonder like to that labor force, what, what happens, right? What happened to the people that were, that were employed there, uh, mm -hmm. or in general, where are they going to go to get a job? And maybe there's part of your labor participation rate. You've also got, uh, I, and I don't have the data to prove this, but I remember a popular point uh, in the summertime was the extent, the additional unemployment goes away in September. So you'll start seeing uh, some of the labor shortages disappear. We're now in December uh, and that doesn't seem to be the case. Mm -hmm. Right. The, the data is yeah. not proving that. Correct. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, so there's a lot of things that, that are dynamics that have been sort of t um, parallel dynamics to this. I wouldn't say are necessarily COVID-related. Um, and then some that are specifically COVID-related. One I'll just mention that I think is more parallel than caused is young men, and per the, the participation of young men, by that I mean people between, let's say, age 18 and 35, as, as the, the extent to which there are a number of what percentage of that cohort has dropped out of the labor force is is surprising. I think the number I saw in a report last week is that it's somewhere in the mid-teens. And wow. the number, in fact, the number of young men in particular who are living with their parents also till age you know, 35 is at least the, the cutoff point where this was measured, is also has substantially increased. So um, I... I this is not in any way, listeners, um, as particular our, our female listeners, this is not in any way, it's sort of a, a wish for, um, I, I want everyone to thrive, but I think part of what includes everyone thriving is helping young men re-engage and feel the compulsion to actually be in the workforce rather than looking at it quite as optionally. I think it, 
harmful to you know their financial well-being as well as their character to family formation etc cetera, etc cetera. so um i i am just thinking through why like when when you first tell mm-hmm. me young men are lower in the workforce i'm thinking well how are they supporting themselves and you answer that by saying well they're living at home mm-hmm. with their with their parents so that that's mm-hmm. got to be part of the reason i i don't i didn't I didn't look into the data as deep as you did, so I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't see that in particular, but I agree that something's got to be done with mm-hmm. it. I'm just thinking about the longer-term, greater implications on society, right? If we mm-hmm. lose uh, just a huge chunk of the workforce, and you've also got um, population growth, not as it was you know, a generation ago, mm-hmm. so that we will have, <clears throat> we'll have to find employees uh, mm-hmm. from somewhere as, as a country mm-hmm. overall. And if we don't, um, then opportunities will just disappear and, and people won't want to move here mm-hmm. into the United States in general as much as they used to. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of truth to that. So um, I'll, I'll mention a couple other things, and that is just in terms of travel and leisure. So <laughs> I think people are noticing you know, all these flights shutting down because of uh, flight crews aren't able to make it. Uh, and certainly I think that's a, that's feels more like a wave than a long-term trend but um it's amazing you thought you thought you were starting to see some progress on those fronts and now you're seeing in the wave of these these explosive numbers of cases new cases uh, constraints being reimposed i think what is it uh was it in the city of was it in philadelphia i think um they're now imposing new kinds of mandates on people that had been sort of dropped away. I, you, I live in Michigan, but I have a lot of clients and I have an office in uh, northern Illinois. And uh, there too, boy, the, the constraints on where you go and what you do and how you gather and masks and so forth are a lot more severe there than they are here. And maybe that's going to continue. You're going to continue to see that sort of tightening. So I, I'm just concerned about those sorts of sectors of the economy that rely on that if they're going to go through another difficult phase so that more of the pizza shops in your neighborhood will, will be closed a year from now. Yeah, I, I, I keep saying I hope not on this, right? We don't know for sure mm-hmm. with what's going on, and I'm sure everyone hopes, hopes not and hope that's not mm-hmm. the case. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's, that's, as we said, a couple potential things that could throw off all these four, which is why... All mm-hmm. these four. I'm not surprised that you only found three companies that that were even in there multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, I I wouldn't have been shocked if it was no companies on there multiple mm-hmm. multiple times, mm-hmm. just because there's so much that can happen that's just unpredictable in any yeah. in any year. Yeah. Well, why don't we switch over and talk about markets now? Because we've talked yes. about the economy. So, what what are your what are your outlooks on the the markets? And there, we're talking about markets plural. So, we're talking about stock markets, bond markets, commodity markets, U.S. markets, international markets. What what were some of your uh, your observations about that? Well, uh, bonds um, are a a um, dangerous place to be if, with uh, <laughs> the Fed taper slowing down as well as uh, expected rate hikes. What I've seen as far as that goes is uh, expect the, the taper to be completed right around March and then expect rate hikes to start in the fall with three of them anticipated, three quarter point, a quarter point hikes. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, as we discussed how things could change, Fed policy is another thing that they, they've done a pretty good job since since 2009 when they said they wanted to be you know, transparent did a pretty mm-hmm. good job saying what they're going to do and then executing on it. But there mm-hmm. are occasions where they have to uh, change course. I think it was in December of 2015, they had a hike and they were planning to do a couple more and they had to just because of uh, changes in the economy. Uh, I was China back then that caused some uh, uh, overall economic changes that can happen again. Are you mm-hmm. seeing similar expectations from the, from the fed? First of all, Yes, in fact, it's not. Sometimes you see a div, uh, a a divergence in what the F- Fed is saying they're going to do and what the markets, um, the as reflected in um, the pricing of bonds within the private sector, what they suggest that the market has as a consensus the Fed will actually do. But in this point, they're, they're indeed in agreement that the Fed will probably raise three times then in 2022 and another three 
three quarter point rise uh, increases in 2023. Now yep. I know that sounds I know that sounds wow that's a lot of raising, uh, but put that in context. You know that's you're talking about even if they did all six at a quarter point, you're talking about one and a half percent higher interest rates at the end of that at the end of that process over a two year period. That's not I would say a crushing blow. And in fact, for those of our clients that are relying on fixed income that actually might be attractive because then they can look forward to a point in time where they're getting something more for their bonds, even if in historic perspective, it's still relatively meager. And I, from a, those that are instead of relying on the income from bonds, instead those that are borrowing, even a 1.5% percentage point increase in let's say what it costs to borrow to buy a home isn't I wouldn't call it devastating. It's it's certainly going to I think put a little bit of a damper on what kind of prices people can afford to pay for a home, and so it might or tame down tamp down a little bit the rapid pace of growth in home prices. But I don't think it puts businesses in a position where they're saying, well, then I just am not going to be able to borrow. We can't undertake our expansion plans, et cetera, et cetera. Your your thoughts about that? Completely agree with you, and they. Uh... We talked about uh, spending, and we've talked in the past a lot about uh, modern uh, economic theory. At mm -hmm. least we've touched on it. Uh, the Fed has to raise rates, right? They have mm -hmm. to raise rates mm -hmm. in preparation of what the next issue is economically. And I'm not even talking about. Hopefully, there's nothing major like like COVID. But even if it's just uh, even if the market hits a hits, uh, or the economy has a recession at some point. They mm -hmm. need to have some options on what they can do, right? And mm -hmm. this whole bond buying, um, that only goes back to 2009, right? And then if you right. go to, to when they included corporate bond buying, even a shorter history. So they were uh, coming up with ideas, right? Uh, you know, they were coming up with the new ideas because they had already driven the rates down so much. So mm -hmm. hopefully we can get back to a, a more normal time economically and so I, I feel like they have to raise rates at some point uh i've mentioned how bonds are a dangerous place just because as rates go up prices go down so mm -hmm. you've got to be be careful there at the same time um uh, a lot of what i'm seeing with the markets and and uh makes sense to me is that the markets aren't going to have as high uh an increase next year as this year I'm seeing things more in the high single digits expectation-wise. Uh, what are you seeing, Eric? But, and when I say yeah. the markets, I'm talking about the equity, the S&P 500 in particular. Right. Uh, same sort of number. I think I'm, I'm seeing somewhere in the mid-sixes is a reasonable exp expectation. Now, people, let's, listeners, let's put this in context. So historically, the total return on the S&P 500 might be somewhere in the neighborhood of an eight or a nine. Uh, well, that's including dividends. And uh, dividends used to be a lot higher back, you know, a, a gener a, two generations ago, back in the early 1900s, dividends were a substantial part of that total return. Let's say maybe 6% was a, was a kind of typical dividend payout. Mid 20th century, it, sub it uh, subsided somewhat and it went to about four. Late 20th century and early 21st century, it's been about two. And by the way, that in part was a byproduct of a rule change made in late 1982 that allowed companies to return that, those dividend payments to their shareholders, not in the form of actual dividend payouts, but instead appropriating those dividends to, to internally repurchase uh, their, the stock of the company, shrinking the number of available shares and implicitly in causing the price then of those shares to rise since the market capitalization of the company, all else being equal, was now being divided over a smaller number of shares. But today, the dividend forecast, incidentally, is now up for the S&P 500 at least, is 1.3%. So it's really gotten to be more and more wafer thin, I would say, on the dividend side. And so the majority of that, that uh, total return now will be you know, essentially uh, what's taking place on price. I think what's interesting on that level, though, is to understand what drives price. And it's two primary things. One is earnings growth. And that's the most important thing. 
and forecasts I'm seeing for earnings growth for the S&P 500 are 9%. So you might be saying, yes. well, if it's 9% forecast earnings growth, but only, let's say, mid to high single digits, you know, less than that, let's call it less than that in terms of the total return on the S&P 500, what accounts for the difference? And that second part is known as the expansion or contraction of the multiple that people are willing to pay for earnings. And in a in rising interest rate environment, the math of, of it, what we call discounting future cash flows, the higher the, the interest rate, the more that future cash flows are discounted back into present value terms, hence the, the multiple contracts, oftentimes all else being equal, it contracts in the face of higher, higher interest rates. So multiple contraction coupled with those earnings gives us this, this projection of a mid to high single digit number. That's a great explanation as you started it. I was thinking about that. Uh, I was hoping you were going that direction, talking about the uh, PE um, multiple as well. Mm -hmm. So that's a good mm -hmm. one. And you talked about the yield on the uh, S&P being low. Mm -hmm. That being said, you're getting a better yield in stocks than you're getting um, <laughs> in bonds, right? Right. So if you're, and this is, that's the Fed's plan in many cases when they, uh -huh. uh, when they cut rates is uh, is you're going to go into theoretically riskier assets, right? So as rates go up, people mm -hmm. will have less of an appetite for risk, so they mm -hmm. pull it out of stocks, and that's where you get the multiple contraction mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. well. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, that, that I think is a very important point for next year as to why you would have um, lower than expected uh, or lower than this year in terms of uh, market returns. Now, mm -hmm. uh, there are uh, a couple firms out there as well that are saying um, they, expect, uh, they expect a decline. Like the consensus is, a, yes. uh, is, a, is single digits, and it's not that rare to see, to see uh, firms expecting a decline as well. Mm -hmm. But would you, uh, if, if you had to decide your, your expectation, right, do you think the odds are higher of, an, of another you know, 20 plus percent year or of a negative low number, right? Uh, I'm trying to pose this negative question. Negative or right? low. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to say negative or low. So the yeah. S&P 500 right now, I think is, if I'm not mistaken, it's about 48.65, something like that. And yep. somewhere in that neighborhood. I'm not looking at it. To, I haven't looked at it today. But the um, somewhere in that neighborhood. So if the, what are the forecasts? I've seen, and maybe you, you tell me if you've seen comparable forecasts. I've seen forecasts for the S&P 500 ending 2022 somewhere between 4,400 yep. and about 56, 55, somewhere in there. If you yeah, pick similar numbers. Yep. Is that right? Yeah. So if you picked sort of the midpoint of those and you went to, a, a, let's say, 5,000, 5,050, you know, 5,100, 5, somewhere in there, that's kind of in between that range. That's where you get that five or six, possibly 7% return from where we are right now. Five, let's call it five-ish, six-ish, somewhere like that. Do you, do you see it differently? No, I, I see, see it the same. I just ran the math on it, but um, that low of 4,400, that'd be, uh, from where it is right now, about an 8% loss. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's that's our extreme low, and the extreme high you saw was in the fifty five hundred neighborhood. Is that was that correct? Uh huh. Yep, somewhere in there. Yeah, actually, I'm looking at it right now, and on this list, I'm looking at it, it says fifty two. So I'll start. I'll use that okay, number, sure. fifty two hundred. Mm -hmm. Um, that would lead to uh an eight percent positive. So if we're looking at that range, right? It's it's actually fairly tighter. Than we've seen the last couple of years, right? With the from a plus eight to a minus eight. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and then yeah, again, those are sort of sort of their midpoint forecasts. That we're not saying it couldn't get higher or you know much higher, or and we're also not saying it couldn't get lower or much lower. I mean, whatever anything can happen. I would say, but at least in terms of setting expectations broadly, you can see there's there's a it's a fair, as you pointed out, a fairly tight convergence around a set of numbers, and it doesn't look like there's much movement. Put that in context, because over the last three years, 2019, 2020, and 2021, 
The S&P 500 has been up roughly. This is, again, total return, uh, about 31.5% in 2019, 18, I think, or something, 17, 18, if I recall correctly. Maybe it was 19 in 2020. And then so far this year, somewhere in the 29-ish area with a few days to go. So yeah. those are big, 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 big gains compared yeah. to the forecast. Well, big in any case. Those are just big in historical perspective, especially three in a row like that. But now when you say, okay, what, what's, what's ahead, it's more subdued. And if you look out 10 years, I, oh my goodness, we have been saying this for so many years. And so because we've been just reporting to, you know, to our clients and now to you, our listeners, the forecast returns to the various asset classes that most people will include in their portfolios are so subdued. And Roche and I actually were having a conversation about this just before we hit record today because, you know, it's on the one hand, you, you don't want to be mm, dismissive of the, entirely, at least, of those forecasts, but you also have to acknowledge there's been a long period where it's been very subdued forecasts that have just not been even remotely close mm -hmm. to what's actually happening. And you're wondering, okay, how come, how are the models so far off from what then actually subsequently unfolds. My, my answer to that, Roshan, is the Fed yes. is the wild card. And the Fed, with this incredible quantitative easing process since 2009, has led to unnaturally high asset levels. But the, I, I recognize that's also not this, the sole explanation. How, how do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, I, I was going to say the Fed, and I mentioned this on our last episode, and I really wish I could cite the source, but uh, around 2011, 2012, one of these famous money managers came out and said, uh, Fed low interest rates and stimulus is here forever. And mm -hmm. he had a whole case as to why it can't go away. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking that that's ridiculous, but nine years later, he's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so as long as... Uh, the Fed does that and does the, keeps rates low. And that's why I think their policy of having to raise rates are, are needed just to prepare for the future mm -hmm. at the very least. Um, so but, that they have room to, to move them lower again in an actual, you know, a crisis it, of a greater magnitude. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And not, not mm -hmm. necessarily, it doesn't have to be a greater magnitude either. It's just, you know, they, they used to make those adjustments uh, when we'd hit a recession which we're mm -hmm. bound to hit at some point, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right, again, and not arguing um, mm -hmm. when it'll happen, just that it will at some point, mm -hmm. and they need some kind of uh, uh, traditional stimulus, and I'm saying traditional because all this bond buying that they've been doing since, you know, QE started, uh, and then, you know, coming back in last year uh, with the pandemic, that's not typical policy. Right. Right. So I think it's... It, one of the things that always causes me to question my expectation that they will raise rates gradually and you know back to some sort of normal level to allow the economy to kind of function and, and interest rates within the economy to function in a more normal way where yeah. it serves as a as a capital allocation signal to borrowers and lenders um, encouraging you know more lending. Uh, or at least a more supply of lending potentially uh, in, in the private sector, but at some level potentially discouraging some level, level of, of borrowing as well as rates increase and drive some marginal borrowers out of, you know, the, the, the math just doesn't work for them at a certain interest rate, which incidentally I'll just say as a side note, I think that's actually a good thing interest rates driving marginal borrowers out of out of the the borrowing process because then it allocates capital to only those sorts of projects that have a reasonable expectation of a high return on that invested capital so but okay that's a little bit of a technical thing for some of our listeners who may others may i'm sorry for our listeners if you're saying i'm scr you're scratching your head saying what did he just say it, it's just it's capital allocation is in a in a free market economy is a very important component of making sure that the economy is healthy and that capital is well used. But on this, the concern that I have in the long run, Roshan, is when we have $29 trillion of national debt, and mm -hmm. that's just now at the federal level, not, I mean, at the fiscal, on the fiscal side, not, you know, we're not talking about the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve and such. But in this case, when you have that level of indebtedness and you're trying to service that debt, if you get 
$29 trillion at 1%, just doing the math here, you're yep. spending $290 billion a year on interest, which is about where we are right now. But if you spend, if you triple that rate, now you're spending a trillion dollars almost uh, of interest on, uh, each year just to service past debt. If you had a $10 trillion or a $20 trillion budget, a trillion might not be that problematic. But if you have a $4 trillion budget and you have to layer on to that an extra trillion for debt service, it's just, it makes it, I think in that sense, at least the political pressure on the Fed to prevent the rate from going too high is, is intense and will be increasingly so. And that's where, that was the argument that that investor made uh, was that, uh, that mm. I mentioned around 2012 or so, that uh -huh. stimulus is here forever, was mm -hmm. that with all the spending that's out there and all the government debt, you have a cap on how high you can take interest rates before you uh, make the government insolvent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, absolutely. So we have talked about S&P targets. We've talked about multiples. We've talked about bonds a bit and, as well and the interest rates there and how that'll lead, we believe, to price declines on existing bonds. By the way, listeners, the longer the, the longer or the more years until a bond matures, the more an interest rate move affects that bond's price. Short duration bonds are less affected by that. And I'll mention another category of bonds that are also some uh, less affected by that, and that's floating rate, floating rate. bonds. Yep. So you have floating rate bonds, you have bank loans, which are another category which also have a floating rate um, element to them and, and other things of that kind. So um, they're also uh, inflation adjusted. Uh, inflation bonds adjusted. As well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Add those in. And just as we're throwing ideas uh, in general or areas to research, uh, that was for the bond sector. Looking at, at, um, at stocks, what I'm researching and seeing that areas to look at, some general guidelines, they're looking, looking for companies that have uh, strong profit margins and pricing power looking at areas like um, <clears throat> that are a little more defensive, like healthcare and um, real estate and energy, things that have not gone up at the same rate at the, uh, as the uh, S&P 500 has over the last, last really three year to three years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Also yeah. looking at financials, just because uh, they typically are set up, uh, set up well, when you've got things tied to inflation yields or increasing rates, banks can charge more in interest. They can make a little bit more money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I believe all those things that you just outlined in terms of sectors that there's a fruitful opportunity there. One, I think uh, healthcare has been you know, trailing somewhat, but especially within health, healthcare, I'm going to just mention biotechs. Biotechs yeah. have been having a really hard time. One of the I think year to date, one of the uh, ETFs that tracks the biotech sector is down somewhere around 20% at the very same time that the overall market is up almost 30. So what does that mean? Does that mean get out of biotechs? I look at it as I'd say, I'm, this is not a broad recommendation to everybody. I'm just, and, but I'm just looking at the, for those of you who are in biotechs and are discouraged about them and are ready to bail out, I would say, don't bail out. I mean, Sit tight just for a little while, and I think the biotechs have a better-than-even chance of outperforming going forward. There's amazing breakthroughs that are being made on, on, uh, in the area of biotechnology. The, gene, the mapping of the genome several years ago and the, the uh, discoveries that are being made um, as a result of that and further you know, gene splicing and gene therapy and, uh, and so on and so forth. I, uh, there's... I'm I'm excited about what that sector will be able to do for the in terms of contributions to human health over the next decade or two. And so anyway, I'm um don't bail out is what I'm saying. Yeah, there there uh, that's an area where you can look deeper that uh, for ideas, right? If you're mm -hmm. seeing that it's down so much, digging deeper in that space might be might mm -hmm. be worthwhile. Mm -hmm. um, Eric, anything, is there anything on your list that um, we didn't talk about that you think is really worth 
I'll add on one last thing sure. is, uh, mm -hmm. especially we talked about this uh, build back better previously, but mm -hmm. infrastructure may be an area to look into as well. Yeah, I, I think there's certainly that. And uh, infrastructure, I think, actually makes a lot of sense, uh, even on the basis of the bill that's already been passed, you know, the, the bipartisan infrastructure uh, framework, they call it. So um, th there's that. And then in terms of thinking about combating inflation, even though we said we think it's going to be high for a bit and then come back to somewhat more normal levels, what, what sorts of um, categories of investment historically have worked well in, the, in, in addressing inflation risk have been things like real estate and commodities. Yeah. So even though gold incidentally hasn't had a great year, um, commodities broadly have, and particularly energy commodities in this phase. Yeah, and uh, the um, commodity outlook that I was that I was seeing is that it still seems to be in an early early stage um, mm -hmm. of the uh, I, commodity super cycle is what they're saying. This is mm -hmm. super cycles in the early innings is the mm -hmm. quote. Mm, so, uh, mm. yeah, so it, it, it definitely is an area worth looking into. Mm. Um, we'll be giving updates along the, along the way and throughout the year as well. But I think this is a good list to start as far mm -hmm. as what to look for, mm -hmm. uh, with what's going on with the markets, what's going on with the, uh, with the economy, the fed politics. We touched a little bit on each of these areas and then what you can do about it, where to look, uh, for investment opportunities. Yeah. Hey, Roshan, I just want to say we've been going here for just about an hour, but this is our last recorded episode of 2021. Yes. And um, so we're going to be entering 2022, folks, and looking forward to the year with you. But you're hearing this at the beginning of 2022. And uh, so, but we just want to say thank you for having been following what we're doing here. Thank you for listening to this podcast. As, as I hope you perceive, we're doing all that we can to try to provide you with consistent value week after week uh, to do this. But I want to say beyond the podcast, and, and we certainly hope, and, and Roshan, I'm sure we'll say, uh, some steps we'd love to ask you to take to promote the show. But I also, we don't often highlight what we do when we're not recording podcasts, which is we, we, serve, we serve clients who are looking to solve and lo the complexities and the big decisions that they're trying to face, the highly consequential decisions around finances, investing, how to develop a retirement income strategy, and on and on and on. If you have, uh, have been listening to the show and finding value in this, but you haven't been working with somebody who you think is addressing these kinds of questions in what I hope you'll agree is a thoughtful, and systematic way, we invite you to give us a call. We invite you to pick up, you know, go to our website, retirementlifestyleshow.com, find our contact information, and shoot us an email. What we'll do is we'll set a time to talk with you, learn what it is that's challenging you, and, and invite you into a conversation about how we might be able to serve as a guide financially for you in the big decisions that you need to make so you'll have a clear plan of action and can really move forward as successfully as possible into your future. Yeah, I, great uh, point. I'm glad you added that, Eric. I'll even add on to that. If you've got questions, that the website's a great way to reach out to us with questions. If you've got, um, they don't necessarily have to be personal questions. They can be topics that we would, uh, that you would like for us to cover as well. So please, as Eric said, reach out to us. We are here to help. Uh, please like the show. Give us five stars. Subscribe. Tell your friends and family about us. Happy New Year, uh, yeah. since you're hearing this right after the New Year. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll be back next year with another great episode of the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Schedule a conversation with Roshan, Adrian, or Eric today at retirementlifestyleshow.com. Roshan and Eric are certified financial planner practitioners. They, along with Adrian, are investment advisor representatives and serve clients across the U.S. with financial planning and investment advice through RHA Wealth. 
If you found this show helpful, gain knowledge, or enjoy the time you spent with us, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, to download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, to ask us a question or to schedule a conversation, go to retirementlifestyleshow.com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arate Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arate Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. The show hosts offer investment advice through Arte Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor, and securities through Arte Wealth Management, LLC, member FEMRA, SIPC, and NFA. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw in Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube Audio Library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. I am Ray Voices. Thank you for listening.